in the book of Acts for the past few weeks. It's a book that's all about the church and its growth from a small handful of frightened followers to really a worldwide movement. But much more significantly, it's a book about the Holy Spirit and his work. Because it's the Spirit who is the prime mover and shaker using God's people to bear witness to Jesus Christ so that God's word would be spread. And as I've mentioned, the key verse to understanding the theme of the book of Acts is in Acts 1.8, where Jesus told his, father, his followers to hang around in Jerusalem until they received the power that they would need to tell the world about him. They waited several weeks, and then as they got together for a time of prayer on the day of Pentecost, which was one of the three major Jewish holidays, the Spirit came with power, and the witness to the world began. While that power was certainly seen in the speaking of tongues and various healings and miracles, the power of the Spirit was far more common to be seen in things like Philip, telling an Ethiopian eunuch or official about Jesus, or Peter at the home of a Roman officer talking about Jesus, or Paul standing before the philosophers in Athens telling them about Jesus. Because the primary role of the Spirit in Acts is to help God's people fulfill that role of being his witnesses. We often tend to focus on technique in how to witness, but in the Bible, the focus is on the Spirit and His power. Just as Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. As one writer and theologian put it, our neglect of the Spirit and His role in our witness is seen by the fact that for most people, Pentecost is a non-event. Calendars mark Christmas and Easter, but Pentecost is spectacularly absent. Yet Pentecost, not the resurrection, was the event that transformed the disciples into exuberant messengers of the good news. When he wrote that, he wasn't downplaying Christmas or Easter. He was elevating Pentecost and the importance of God's Spirit. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, he wasn't just talking to the twelve, he was speaking to the entire church. He was speaking to us. And whether it's in our silence, or our attitude and behavior, or the words we use, we are being and bearing witness to Christ in some way, for better or for worse, either helping people draw nearer to God or turning away from him. We are his witnesses. But witness to what? How can we witness? Because it's mainly, not mainly about spouting doctrine or Bible verses or personal opinions and social commentaries about what's wrong with our world. It's not standing at the state capitol with a megaphone protesting. To be his witness in those ways often make it more difficult and intimidating than it needs to be. To witness means simply to share what we have seen or heard or experienced. To share how God has become real to us. One of the best descriptions is found in 1 John 1, where he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this is what we are proclaiming to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. That's bearing witness. 
telling what we have seen. And it's the Spirit who makes God real in our lives. It's God working in us. So witnessing is simply sharing what God means to you. Why you choose to worship on a morning like this, or to follow him, how he's made your life different. Unfortunately, though, often our words get in the way, and in our desire to be clever, or to sound reasonable, or to find acceptance, we can water down or confuse the message. Sometimes we may not even listen to what we're saying. We're simply speaking the words, saying what comes to mind, and we get the message confused in the process. Have you ever noticed that what you want or think you were saying is really not what other people hear? And so they get offended or hurt or misinterpret your intentions because in spite of our good intentions, we end up getting in the way. There's a good reason that James said our tongues can get us into a world of trouble. A young boy's teacher gave the class a homework assignment to write a report about where they came from. And when his mother came home that night, he asked, Mom, where did I come from? The mother didn't want to be bothered, so she gave that age-old answer, "Um, the stork brought you. He persisted, though. Mom, where did you come from then? Well, the stork brought me just like he brought you. Now go to your room and finish your homework. No more questions, please. But again, the boy persisted. What about Grandma? Where did Grandma come from? Look, the stork brought grandma, the stork brought me, the stork brought you. Now go to your room. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So the little boy goes to his room and begins writing his report. He starts with, our family has not had a normal birth for three generations. (laughs) Sometimes in our efforts to make something acceptable to someone or simple, we actually are undermining the message. There are some things, though, that we can learn from Peter's approach in Acts chapter 3, right after the healing of the man born lame, and that's the passage we'll be in this morning. It's Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. So what we looked at last week, this man who is born lame is healed miraculously. They go into the temple. He's jumping around. He's shouting. He's praising God. And then it says in verse 11, while the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers who has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus." 
He must be remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And then a couple verses on, it says, but many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Peter didn't simply jump right in quoting the Bible to them or the plan of salvation. Instead, he began by getting their attention. The miracle of the man's healing provided the backdrop for Peter's witness and the message that he proclaimed. In Acts, getting people's attention so they will listen is really a primary role of the miracles and the tongues to support their witness. It's what got their attention. They got, gained a hearing for him. For that matter, it's what people's attention, drew people's attention to Jesus in his own ministry. They saw him do something, and they wanted to find out more about it. What did this man have to say? People aren't going to care what you know if they don't know that you care. We need to remember why we have VBS every year. Why we have a weekday preschool. Why we have special outreach events, or the choir sings a cantata in the mall at Easter and Christmas. Or why are we going to Taiwan? We could just give money. But money cannot take the place of touch and human contact. It doesn't show that we care any more than giving alms to the lame man sitting outside the temple gate showed anything more than people doing their religious duty in the book of Acts. Money can actually become an excuse for us not to be involved. That we are called to, be, to care and to be involved in missions. Not just by giving, but by going as well. We are called to go to our community and beyond. Jesus didn't say, you shall be my witnesses in your own backyard of Jerusalem. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. And it's things like VBS or missions that get people's attention, that show that we care about more than just ourselves and taking care of our own. Sometimes, though, we can get in the way by jumping right in while people could care less. We haven't given them a reason to listen. We speak without thinking and sometimes turn them away before we even start. Like Peter, we need to get their attention, give them a reason to listen, arouse their curiosity, whether through its sharing our own story, our testimony of what Jesus means to us, or through acts of caring, or asking a thought-provoking question, or simply in the normal course of your conversation. One of the most creative ways I heard of someone getting another's attention so they would listen was shared by a pastor named Jeffrey Cotter. It's recounted by John Ortberg in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. He said he was on his way home after an interview at a church in another city. He was tired, 
And he was dressed really casually in blue jeans as he sat down in the plane and next to a man who he describes as pinstripe-wearing, attache-case-carrying, Wall Street journal-reading businessman who obviously had an air of self-importance. He refers to him simply as Mr. MBA. His initial impulse was to avoid all conversation, especially about jobs. But when Mr. MBA started talking to him, that option was lost. The man said he worked in what he referred to as as the figure salon business. He spoke with pride about how they could change a woman's self-concept by changing her body. He talked of his excitement about the power and the significance of what he did. Carter said he was struck by this man's pride in his work and accomplishments, and he began to wonder why Christians aren't more like that, why we're so often apologetic about our faith. So he decided then and there he would change that. Looking skeptically at Carter's clothes, Mr. NBA asked, well, what do you do? And Carter answered, the spirit began to brood over the face of the deep. Order and power emerged from chaos, and a voice in a whisper reminded me, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I answered this man. It's interesting. We're in a similar business. I'm in the personality-changing business. We apply basic theocratic principles to to accomplish indigenous personality modification. Mr. MBA was hooked but would never admit it. You know, I think I've heard of that, he replied hesitantly. But do you have an office here in the city? Oh, we have many offices. We have offices up and down the state. In fact, we're national. We have at least one office in every state of the union, including Alaska and Hawaii. He had that puzzled look on his face. He was searching his mind to identify this huge company he must have read or heard about, perhaps in his Wall Street Journal. As a matter of fact, I continued, we've even gone international. The management has a plan to put at least one office in every country of the world by the end of this business era. I paused. Do you have that in your business? Well, uh, no, not yet, he answered. But you mentioned management. How do they make it work? It's a family concern, I said. There's a father and a son, and they run everything. It must take a lot of capital, he asked skeptically. You mean money? Well, yes, I suppose so. No one really knows how much it takes, but we never worry about that because there's never a shortage. The boss always seems to have enough. He's a very creative guy, and the money is, well, it's just there. In fact, those of us in the organization have a saying about our boss. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Oh, he's into ranching too, asked my captive friend. No, it's just a saying we use to indicate his wealth. My friend sat back in his seat. What about with you, he asked. The employees? There's something to see, I said. They have a spirit that pervades the organization. It works like this. The father and the son love each other so much that their love filters down through the organization so that we all find ourselves loving one another also. I know this sounds old-fashioned in a world like ours, but I have people in the organization who are willing to die for me. Do you have that in your business? I was almost shouting now. People were starting to shift noticeably in their seats. Not yet, he said. 
quickly changing strategies, he asked, but do you have good benefits? Oh, they're substantial, I countered with a gleam. I have complete life insurance, fire insurance, all the basics. You might not believe this, but it's true. I have holdings in a mansion that's being built for me right now for my retirement. Do you have that in your business? Not that, he answered wistfully. But the light was dawning. You know, one thing bothers me. I've read journals, and if your business is all that you say it is, why haven't I heard about it before now? That's a good question, I said. After all, we do have a 2,000-year-old tradition. Want to sign up? We became more than casual strangers during those next few minutes. What he's talking about that is simply he's getting the man's attention. He's drawing him in in a conversation, a good, fun way to get him to listen. Sometimes we need to be a little more creative to get people's attention also, to get them and give them a reason to listen before we simply jump right in and sharing something. The man in Acts 3 had just been healed. He goes into the temple with Peter and John. He makes a spectacle of himself, jumping around, praising God. People gave them their attention. It would have been easy to leave it at that. The man and Peter would have been the center of everyone's intention. Instead, what Peter does then is he immediately points away from himself and this man and points to Christ. The second thing we can learn from Peter's approach, once we get someone's attention, we have to get out of the way and point them to Jesus, not block their view. As people rushed over to see what was happening in the temple what all the commotion was about, Peter stood up and declared, it's not about us, it's Jesus. Or to use his words, men of Israel, why do you, does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. It's one of the difficulties of relying solely on actions or good deeds those can become an end in self. We rely on our behavior, and then we become the focus of attention. We never tell them why we're doing it. We never tell them what difference Jesus has made in us so that we want to do it. If we don't point people to Christ, they'll leave thinking, oh, what nice people those people are at Polyview that have vacation Bible school for our children every year. How thoughtful that they take care of our kids during the week. How helpful they are. What good things they are doing. It becomes about us. But we don't want them talking about us. We want them to looking to Jesus, who Hebrews described as the author and perfecter of our faith. Of course, it works the other way as well. We can be so, sometimes so puffed up with arrogance or pride or selfishness or sensitivity or blunt and people get the opinion that that's what it's all about and they want nothing to do with it. When the late William Sangster was pastoring a church in Scarborough, he had a member who tried really, really hard to be zealous for the Lord. Unfortunately, in his enthusiasm, he usually got in the way, doing or saying the wrong thing, and he ended up driving most people away from God. Sangster at one time related how this man was a barber by profession. He had one of those old-time barber shops you often see on TV with one of those straight-line razors, really sharp. He said on one occasion, a customer came in, came in looking for a shave. And so he sat down in the chair. He got all lathered up. 
And just as this member was coming towards him with this razor poised over, poised in hand, he asked the man, are you prepared to meet your God? <laughs> he never saw the man again, lather and all. We need to make sure we don't get in the way of Jesus, become an obstacle to faith, drawing attention to ourselves instead of to him. We get attention, we point to Christ, and then Peter got personal. Then he began talking about, well, we often begin talking about forgiveness and eternal life, which we need to do. But in the end, we also need to talk about personal responsibility for life and actions. That's the part we sometimes have the greatest difficulty. We want to be liked, we want to be accepted, we don't want to turn people off. We want to make it attractive and by softening it, and we can leave out the most important aspects, like personal sin and guilt. The good news of Christ isn't primarily about happiness and prosperity and health. It's about Jesus Christ and what he did to make forgiveness possible. So Peter goes straight into it. You handed them over, him over. You disowned him. You killed the author of life. In other words, you are responsible. The reason Jesus came and died was because of your sins, because of my sins, because of all of our sins. The the cross is about our responsibility. But the thing is, we may be guilty, we may have sinned and fallen short, but the two greatest words in this whole passage, I believe, follows Peter's words of guilt. He says, you've done all these terrible things, And he says, but God, but God raised him from the dead. God is not stopped by your failure or your rebellion. Words of comfort and encouragement we need to hear. We may have have denied him. We may have sinned. We may have gone our own way. But God still raises the dead. We may have done terrible things, but God still loves you. But God still wants you as his child. But God still forgives and cleanses from sin. But God still wants you to have you as his child. We need to hear and hold on to those words. Man may fall, but God raised Jesus from the dead. Peter points out the cross wasn't an accident or a failure. It wasn't an afterthought or an accident. It was part of God's plan from the beginning of time. It says the prophets foretold it. Jesus didn't have to die. He wanted to because of his love for us. Or as often been said, it wasn't the nails that held him to the cross, it was his love. In being Christ's witness, Peter first got their attention, then he got out of the way so they could see Jesus, then he got personal, and finally he got a response. It says the number grew to about 5,000 because he wasn't afraid to ask him, what about you? What are you going to do with Jesus? Love calls for a response, not just to mentally accept Jesus that he died 2,000 years ago, that maybe he came back from the dead, but he died for me. He died for you. More than that, he wants us to receive his love, not merely assent to it. People responded to the message. The important question for all of us is have we responded? 